Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and while Max Verstappen cruised to yet another victory in the Mexican Grand Prix, home hero Sergio Perez's race was over at Turn 1 after being launched in a collision with Charles Leclerc. What does this latest setback mean for his Red Bull future, and how might the race have played out if he'd made it round the first corner? And the very rapid Lando Norris not started near the back? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us with all the answers are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, we'll come to you first. Welcome back to the post-race podcast after a couple off. Thank you. Have you missed me from this podcast more than you've missed me from the midweek podcast after your lukewarm res- uh, your lukewarm reception to my return for the for the preview podcast we did with Diego? Well, I think it's because I'm looking forward to having uh, Oscar Mitchell Malm on the podcast in future. So I'm already looking to the next generation. Oh, and I, I'm also looking forward to um, to palming off all my responsibilities on on him as well. So don't worry, we we share the same end goal there, which is for him to take over and do all my work for me. This is an excellent strategy. And with me right here is Mark Hughes. How have you enjoyed your Mexico weekend? Yeah, it's been um, intense, but um, it's been quite enjoyable. It's flown by, absolutely flown by. Um, a bit of a bumpy ride back and forth to the hotel over the Mexican roads, so, especially when you sit in the, the naughty lad seat at the back. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been good. How did you guys get on with um, the... I assume that they had a brilliant taco truck in the paddock again this year i think my record last year was like seven tacos in in one day at the track so how did you guys get on with that i was far too busy to do any of that and i didn't i didn't sample a single one because i'm obviously very careful with what i eat as everybody uh knows so yeah we've let you down there i'm afraid so we'll, we'll have to uh set you on that one next year but yeah it was a very mexican grand prix weekend this event's got a very very particular feel and certainly a celebratory air so yeah that's been a very good weekend bit of a dampener with the first corner so i guess scott we have to start with sergio perez's horribly short mexican grand prix real shame for many of the fans who packed the grandstands to support him he made that great start made it three wide for the lead into the first corner was what happened to him misfortune or misadventure a little of column a little of column b i think uh one of those where you can see why it's happened and how it's happened and i have a degree of sympathy for him because and, and understanding because it's his home race I feel like I feel like in in his heart of hearts he must know that there is a bit of doubt over what his future looks like whether that's 24 or 25 how many more times is he going to race in front of his home fans how many more times is he going to do that in a car that's capable of winning not just standing on the podium again and he'd had the best start he said 
he's had all season. And I just I get why Hart rules head in in that scenario. I I, I do I do understand all of that. And it wasn't like the move was completely off. It wasn't. It was a bit of a hail mary around the outside, but it wasn't like it wasn't sending it from ten car lengths back on the inside or something like that. So I get all of that. But a driver of his experience and the position that he's in, he's trying to close out second in the championship. I just feel. He 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 knows better. He should know better. He should be applying a little bit of discretion. And if you're gonna make that move, you have to leave enough margin to actually be able to pull it off. And that's the problem I had with it. It was just he it, it he. I think he said he was surprised that Leclerc was still there because of how late he braked in the middle. But why shouldn't Leclerc be contesting that corner just as much as everybody else? And I just feel like. If Perez is going to make that move, if you're going to, you have to play the percentages a little bit. And it's not that he turned in like Leclerc wasn't there; it's just he turned in like Leclerc had to disappear or have disappeared for it to work, and that's where it it skewed into carelessness, in my opinion. And I wasn't surprised that the end result was the Red Bull being pitched quite aggressively airborne. Yeah, for me it wasn't really going to work. He was going down a cul-de-sac. I'd have rather he held on the outside and tried to gain something from Verstappen and Leclerc battling with each other later in that sequence. So yeah, a pretty uh, a pretty unfortunate decision for Checo and actually a real shame because his pace was pretty good this weekend. 0.16 off Verstappen in qualifying. So actually there was a lot good about this weekend. So it's a shame it ended that way. And I think he could have made a better decision. But I guess, as he said, he wanted to have a go. He wanted to at least look back and think, I gave it a go. I got the answer to the question of what will happen if I try this very, very optimistic uh, move. Inevitably, Mark, we've got some questions from the Race Members Club on this. So we'll throw this one from Danny Elliott to you. He asks, do desperate drivers do desperate things? And is this the end of his Red Bull racing career come 2024? Um, they, they do. Uh, it, it's, um, it's not the first time um, a driver has been in a a tough situation and it's, it's just sort of spiralled into more mistakes and, and, and put more pressure on them. Um, but I actually think that even though it ended you know, disastrously at the, at the first turn, in looking at his weekend as a whole, when he's only a tenth and a half off max in qualifying, um, his Long runs were, were absolutely as quick, even slightly quicker than Max's, albeit on different tyres. He was bang on the pace pretty much this, this weekend. And I think that, even with the first corner error, um, is far less damaging to his prospects than one of those weekends where he qualifies ninth and finishes fifth in the best car on the field. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Scott, another question from the Race Members Club, this time from Joe Andrews, and the Paris pressure is escalating as we run through these questions. It says, Checo seemed defeated after his retirement. Was this his last race for Red Bull? Maybe Brazil will be. Imagine the impact of a Danny Rick call-up for Vegas. I mean, that would be pretty remarkable. Um, I think the reason Checo seemed defeated was that he was, I think he was just genuinely sad. Uh, it's a uh, it's the it's the worst feeling in the world for for a driver to crash out on the first corner of their home Grand Prix, especially when Checo knows that you know he's a national hero and it's not just that he's got good support in the grandstands; it's hundreds of thousands of people are there just for him. So there's um 
there's pressure, there's expectation, but there's a huge desire as well to 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 do a good job and and succeed and do and do well in in, in that race. And he would much rather just stand on the bottom step of the podium than he would be eliminated on on the opening lap. So I think that's just inherent disappointment and and, and sadness. I. I'd be absolutely stunned if he has driven his last race for Red Bull. Uh, I agree with Mark's sentiment just now that ultimately a weekend like this, it, it, it isn't as bad as those almost anonymous weekends. We'll talk about Daniel Ricciardo in more detail later, but it, it's more awkward in this scenario because it creates such a harsh contrast with what Ricciardo did. Um, so... I think there's more pressure and there is mountain pressure on Perez. I'm not 100% convinced by some of the language being used by Red Bull around it. Helmut Marko seems typically more forceful and forthright in what he says. You know, Perez has got a contract and that's the plan, blah, blah, blah. But as Christian Horner put it, you know, the intention is for Perez to drive in 2024 because he's got a contract. But you can have the intention of doing something and not actually go through with it. And Horner is meant to be the team principal at Red Bull Racing. So if he's if there is a contract and he wants Perez to drive next year, what, why would it just be the intention? It, it, it would happen, right? And that might just be a nuance of the language that Christian uses, but I feel like it's a bit more, diff, bit more deliberate than that. Perez isn't doing anywhere near as bad a job as the likes of Pierre Gasly did when he got dropped in the middle of the season, but that same language was used around then no intention of dropping Gasly and then a few weeks later they did exactly that. Yeah, exactly. It would be very, very easy to be more emphatic about it knowing there's so much talk about it and Red Bull has previous. But yeah, I'd agree it would be pretty extreme for Red Bull to make a change before the end of the season. I can't possibly see that one happening and that gives Perez uh, the chance to pick up some good results. Now, Mark, let's play hypotheticals a little bit because the race was pretty straightforward in the end, the way it played out for Verstappen. What might have happened had Perez not only survived Turn 1 but got the lead. The Mexican fans on their feet. Perez leads the race. Mm -hmm. Could he have done something magical? Well, I asked Christian Horner what would have happened in that situation, and he said, well, it would have been every man for himself. Um, They would have been allowed to to fight for the win. And you would think, well, yes. On the surface, you think, okay, but Verstappen would easily beat him. I'm not so sure. Because if you're in the same car... um, it, 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 it's very, very difficult around that track to um, to do an overtake. Uh, the DRS is pretty ineffective in that, that thin air. You can only follow for maybe maybe a lap at a time before everything overheats, so you've got to back off again. Um, so I think it would have come down, actually, to a, a strategy battle between them. And... Uh, it would have involved Max having to overtake, ultimately, um, on a an offset strategy. And yeah, I'm sure he would have prevailed ultimately, but it's not impossible that Perez would have hung on. It would have been a, probably a bit like Miami, you know, earlier in the season where Max had started from ninth and, and, and Perez was on pole. It would have ended up, I think, like that, a bit of a grind, but you always suspect that Max is the one that's going to have the upper hand. But it would have it would have been fascinating. And there are several what-ifs that were, you know, um, even, even if... Perez had gone out of the first corner. There was the what if if there'd been no red flag if Magnussen hadn't crashed, because um, Red Bull were absolutely wedded to a two-stop. They planned on a two-stop right from the beginning of Friday for both cars, 
and that's why they um, they had an extra set of hard tyres for Max, an extra set of mediums for Checo, whereas everybody else had one each because they were all in, you know, intending to one-stop. So you would have seen, without the red flag, a Leclerc one-stop versus a Verstappen two-stop. And when you look at the... Um, the, the the pace the relative pace of each in the early stages and sort of extrapolated out to a two stop versus one it has max coming out third behind hamilton and with leclerc leading he would have got past hamilton easily enough because the merc was so slow on the straights and we, we we saw how much quicker the the red bull was out of that final turn so that that wouldn't have been a problem but it would have been fascinating to see him chasing down leclerc because leclerc's lead at that point as verstappen's made his second stop would have been in the order of sort of nine ten seconds something like that so he would have had plenty of laps left left to do it but you can imagine just how stern a defense leclerc would have put up and it would have been in a much um, harder to pass car than the mercedes would have been it's a good example of how red flags sometimes can really liven up races but they had the opposite effect because it was just at the wrong time uh this time i've got to ask scott just going back to the perez leading you looked slightly skeptical did you think that it would be difficult for perez to have to have beaten verstappen had he survived that first turn uh, less that and more that I was thinking a situation in which Perez has uh, Verstappen has to beat Perez by either an on-track overtake or something strategic is like Red Bull's worst case scenario at the Mexican Grand Prix. Could you imagine, and we talked about this actually, didn't we, on the preview podcast, if, if Perez had got ahead into turn one and Verstappen managed to overtake him and eventually win by dint of a a strategy in which they accidentally undercut him or he had a slightly different strategy to Perez and made it work better. It doesn't matter whether or not Red Bull did or didn't orchestrate it so Verstappen won or whatever. Like the the perception of Verstappen getting a helping hand past Perez because Perez had got the jump on him at turn one, that it it give it it makes me uncomfortable even thinking about a race in which Verstappen overtakes Perez to win the Mexican Grand Prix because I just feel like that would have ended up being quite hostile or at least very poorly received. Yeah, I don't think Max would have done him any favours. Certainly, he's there to win the race, so he'd have gone for it, as racing drivers tend to do. Just quickly, the Mercedes pace, Mark. You mentioned that they wouldn't have had the the speed to to have beaten Leclerc normally, or Hamilton wouldn't, rather, but relatively promising again for them after that good Cota weekend I guess it's sort of a another gently encouraging weekend yeah they, they're still on that sort of um, quite a gentle upward slope um, it's, it's not going to be enough to, to do anything spectacular I don't think but it, it, you know that the Merc is always going to have respectable race pace these days you, that, that wasn't always a, such a certainty in the early part of the season Um yeah, I mean, it, it's its main problem was its uh, lack of um, straight line speed. When when you run, when everybody runs with their full wings, which they did here, the Merck's relatively inefficient, so it tends to be a bit slow at the end of the straights. That was its main problem. It wasn't very raceable. Yeah, and it was second place for Hamilton, which is a good result. George Russell, six, he struggled a bit. He said it was like driving on ice in the final 15 or so laps because he had to back off and then just lost the tyre temperature and never got it back. So, uh, yeah, so Hamilton was very much the stronger of the two Mercedes drivers over the weekend, a strong weekend for him, solid points for Russell, but he was a little bit disappointed with that. Well, let's quickly take a diversion 
because those who listen to our pre-Mexican Grand Prix podcast will know that this was the first round of our The Race F1 Cup competition with 16 drivers drawn in four groups. The top two advanced to the quarterfinals. It's just a little bit of fun for the final part of the season, given the World Championship has long since been decided. You can follow the progress of this across the final race of the season on X or Twitter, as almost everyone still calls it, on at We Are The Race, and let us know who you expect to prevail. Scott, would you like to do the honours and let us know how Group A went? Yeah, so Group A was uh, Carlos Sainz, Lando Norris, Alex Albon and Joe Guan Yu. So Sainz and Norris progress from that group. Sainz fourth, Norris fifth. Decent uh, decent recovery from Norris, given obviously started at the back. And Albon scores more points for Williams, but it's not quite enough to progress in this competition. That's actually, that was actually quite a tough group in hindsight, wasn't it? I think uh, poor Joe was on a bit of a hiding to nothing there. <laughs> Yeah, P9 for Albon, the highest placed driver to be knocked out. Group B was a bit of a walkover because there were two Aston Martins in it. Neither of them finished. So Lewis Hamilton, second place, and Pierre Gasly in 11th advance to the quarterfinals from that. Over to you with Group C, Scott. Yep, it was another Mercedes victory. George Russell prevailed there with Esteban Ocon comfortably following him through. It was Valtteri Bottas and the shock victim, lap one, corner one crusher, Sergio Perez knocked out. So I would... I would say that Ocon is the 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 big unsung beneficiary of uh, Perez's retirement. Perez, of course, who I tipped to win this little competition in the last podcast, so I've done very very well there. Fell at the last, fell at the last hurdle, fell at the first hurdle, <laughs> and Group D. Charles Leclerc was in that, so his third place was more than enough. And Oscar Piastri, despite a slightly disappointing race in eighth, goes through. So that eliminated Yuki Tsunoda, who should have gone through, and Nico Hulkenberg. The so, contra- controversy then coming out of Group D. Maybe that's why Piastri and Tsunoda were fighting so hard. I think it must be. They knew this was all about Group D honours, and they knew they were the second car in that group. So it just shows how hard they'll go. We have that question about how desperate do people get. So it must have been all about that. We've got our eight quarter finalists, though, now. Sainz, Norris, Hamilton, Gasly, Russell, Ocon, Leclerc, and Piastri, who advanced to the knockout stages. We'll have a draw on our next podcast. So join us midweek for that, and keep following on X or Twitter, or whatever you want to call it. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Hey, it's Kate. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right, Mark, let's get back to the race itself and McLaren, specifically Lando Norris. He made what he called a silly mistake in Q1, so started 17th but came through to finish 5th. How good was his drive and what might have been possible with a proper grid position? Yeah, it was a sensational drive under the circumstances because what you can't do here is um, get the brakes too hot because there's, there's hardly any air to cool them. And uh, that's, you know, why you see everybody driving offset to the car ahead and, and keeping a big distance behind. And yet, you, you know, on that restart, he came through and overtook 10 cars. And <laughs> his tyres were in good nick at the end. And it was an extraordinary drive. Um, maybe the best of his career so far. And it had um, his team boss, Andrea Stella, reaching for the superlatives and comparing it to some of the great drives with some of the great drivers he's worked with in the past, including Fernando Alonso and, and Michael Schumacher. Yeah, and Stella's not to be trifled with when it comes to that sort of thing. He says it because he means it, doesn't he? Absolutely, and it was it, such a classy drive. And yeah, if if he'd started anywhere near where he'd supposed to have done, you know, you you assume he'd be in the, the upper bit of Q3 uh, at the at the very least. Then yeah, he would have. Um, he wouldn't have beaten Max, but I don't think. But when you look at the race pace and you know, the the offsets for the tyre, um, both Mercedes and McLaren both said you you couldn't split Hamilton and Norris for the, the their speed. The 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 basic underlying performance looked almost identical, but Norris had to put all those passes. I mean, Lewis did want that fantastic pass on Leclerc with one wheel on the grass, but Norris had to do several. You know. Uh, it was an amazing sequence, an amazing drive under the circumstances. What surprised me was how he was able to do that and still have performance in the car and in the tyres when he needed it. I know, obviously, the the red flag sort of shuffled the pack a little bit and maybe changed sort of the the, the position that everybody was in. But that restart, at least it, it obviously could have gone worse for Norris, but that restart did, didn't exactly propel Lando forward. No. No. Um, if anything, it had the opposite effect. Yeah, um, he, he had I, should, I should say, Lando Norris was very disappointed with some driving from some of those ahead of him at the restart that he's battling with. He didn't name any names, but he said it's quite obvious who he was irritated with, so he was not happy with the way people were uh, approaching that restart. I'll have to dig out the onboard then and find out exactly who it is that he's um, so unhappy with. But, it, you know, because he, uh, he was on mediums for the, for the, for the restart, wasn't he? Yeah. Which obviously... You look at the number of laps left and you think, okay, you're going to have a nice pace advantage um, early on, but you might struggle to get those to the end, especially as he's got a load of cars to to overtake. And the fact that you got to those final laps of the Grand Prix and he was still picking cars off and taking huge chunks of time out of fast cars as well. It wasn't like he was picking off the odd Alpine or Alfa Romeo to get into 7th or 8th. You know, he was catching the, the Alfa Tauri that had run 5th of the entire Grand Prix and then uh, Russell's Mercedes. So... I just thought it was, and you put that into com, into comparison with Piastri, you know Oscar Piastri, who has done another good job in 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 qualifying, and we've seen the the, the caliber of driver he is in his rookie season. But in these 
high stakes management races that sort of rookie inexperience is costing him versus Norris and the difference in their in their performance their management their command of the the Grand Prix was 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 pretty massive and it, it just offered a really nice contrast because if if that was easy then Piastri would have been third fourth in that Grand Prix and Norris would have been nowhere near him for Norris to have beaten him and not just beaten him beaten him comfortably considering the circumstances of the race helped by the red flag or not and he wasn't far off Piastri even when the red flag came out if I remember it correctly I it was a really 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 high class drive and fully fully made amends for what he was rightly annoyed about on Saturday which was a silly mistake to get himself knocked out of Q1. Yeah, and Norris was quite happy to admit that he was still disappointed by what happened on Saturday because he knows what might have been possible had he got Q1 right. So he's very honest with himself there, and and rightly so, because that fundamentally changed his weekend for the worse. And actually, to Piastri's credit, the thing I really like about him, he's so matter-of-fact about it. He makes no excuses on the tyre management. He's like, yep, still got work to do on that. I know this. And that's why I'm so confident he'll get there. Because some drivers just are quite happy to blame external factors, things that aren't in their control. He's saying, no, that's in my control. I've got to learn. I am learning. And that means he will get there. So not a great weekend for Piastri from that perspective, but all part of the learning process. He's still a rookie, no matter how good he's been. And we have to make allowances for that. Now, Scott, it's time to talk about Daniel Ricciardo, who was the big story of the weekend. He qualified a stunning fourth and finished seventh. Liam Robertson from the Race Members Club asks if Ricciardo's strong weekend gives Red Bull something serious to think about for next season. Uh, I think it does, absolutely. I have had the impression for a little while that if if Red Bull if Red Bull wants to replace Perez and we don't know for sure that that it's in that place now or if it actually ever will be this season, but if it wants to replace Perez, it, it needs it needs someone to step up and be an obvious candidate. And and there is there hasn't been anyone that has really offered that not not with a strong case. And the point of Ricardo coming back mid season was interesting because it was meant to be the potential alternative to Perez that the Red Bull could have. But we've had to wait ages to see a case be built for that because obviously the two sort of solid but unspectacular races before the break then went into his uh, wrist-breaking accident in, in Zandvoort that then prompted this surprisingly long spell on the sidelines, which meant coming back at Austin, which was a sprint race and bit awkward and he's not sure how his hands are going to go and they just put him on Yuki Tsunoda's setup for the weekend and that doesn't really work for him and another race goes by about Ricardo looking anything like his old self really just looking like a slightly better version of the reduced Ricardo we saw at McLaren but he comes out the blocks this weekend absolutely smashes it qualifies really well so the raw speeds there raced really well really good race craft really good time management experienced calm collected got everything he could out of that car this weekend. How, how do you look at that as Red Bull and not seriously think, actually, that's what we need to see from this guy. And actually, that's at a level that would suit us really well in the top team. You you can't, if you're Red Bull and you've got him on your books and he drives like that, it's only one event. So you, I don't think they'd make a decision off one. I'd be surprised if they did. But you're looking at that and thinking, if he does that over those last few races and Perez doesn't, you know, deliver to this level all the time why wouldn't you consider him 
for the Red Bull Racing Drive for 24, not, not just 25. Yeah, and it's certainly given them some momentum that weekend in that regard. Mark, there's a question from Tom Bannister who asks, is Daniel Ricciardo back to his best and therefore could Red Bull drop Perez for him next year? It's looking increasingly like that. It's looking like um, that's that's much more like the, 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 the Red Bull Daniel Ricciardo, isn't it, than... Uh, than the, the McLaren one. We, we saw the McLaren one. We saw the Red Bull one at McLaren maybe three times in, 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 in the, 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 the whole time he was there. Um, but yeah, he, he's uh, much happier with this car. It, this car allows him, well, it can be set up in a way that the, the McLaren couldn't and it allows him to uh, drive the way he naturally wants to drive. And the, the McLaren just didn't. And, and I think that's... Um, something which is often underappreciated when people are assessing the performance of the drivers is just the car must dovetail with what what, what they naturally do the way they are naturally wired up in terms of the you know the, 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 the physical sensations that they feel and how they feel the car and uh, yeah he likes to just be able to turn the car and and how, with, with the steering and not so much with the uh, the, with the, 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 the weight changing the weight distribution without overlapping the brakes and the, the steering and um, he's much happier in this and then it's, it's allowing him this car is allowing him to have that so it's the position was flattered by the particular circumstances of Mexico and the, the tyre prep and, and and all those things I wouldn't expect him to be qualifying on the second row to any of the remaining races but he's clearly given Alpha Tauri um a direction that it didn't have before, and it's it he's, he's improved the performance of the of the team significantly. Yeah, and it's been all about getting a bit more front end in the car for him, and that has tyre benefits as well, so that he can get the rotation uh, into the car. And any concerns about the instability causing him problems, which was a legitimate question, that's not a problem. In fact, he's been able to tolerate a bit more instability being in that Alpha Tower than perhaps it started with. So that's very, very encouraging. And I think it also underlines how weird the McLaren is to drive, which again says what an amazing job Lando Norris and then this year Oscar Piastri as well have been doing with uh, what is a a bit of a knife-edge car. But Scott, another question related to this from Chuck Aoki, who says, what do we make of Alpha Tauri this weekend? Is this a real jump in performance or was this result of external factors? Yeah, I'd agree with what Mark said. I I don't think the lead Alpha Tauri drivers are going to be qualifying fourth every weekend. So it's not like what we've seen this time in in Mexico is now going to be the new benchmark to judge AlphaTauri for the rest of the year not just Ricardo but there there are elements of it that are obviously real and then there are elements that are flattered or exaggerated or improved whatever word you want to use by the specific circumstances of the Mexico weekend this is a track that AlphaTauri has always gone well on uh it does seem to have a mechanically sound car which means when you're at a track like this at altitude where you've run in maximum wings but you've got monza levels of downforce you're relying on that mechanical platform a lot more it does seem to work well we know that the honda engines particularly good at altitude always it has been for a few years now so as a package it is competitive and i think also just in ricardo specifically obviously they had the opportunity this weekend to make those setup changes experiments um tailored to his needs they went hard on it in Friday practice which they couldn't do in Austin and they haven't been able to do because he's been out of the car you know they started to do this at Zandvoort and Ricardo was encouraged by that there but then he disappears for a little while and the driver in his place you know the lead driver is Yuki Tsunoda who drives a different way so therefore the car is set up for, for Yuki 
It's not to say that the way that Ricardo drives setting the car up for him, the car's going to be half a second down the road, but it might be a fraction faster. Or crucially, it might not be any faster than the way that Yuki likes to drive, but the car can be set up in a way that allows Ricardo to absolutely maximise it. So what I would say is that the trend that we've seen from AlphaTauri with the upgrades they've brought, that is a marginal Q3 car, if not a top 10 car. And I would be surprised if they don't score more points before the end of the season because I think the car's got the potential for it, especially in the right place. And I think Brazil might be quite good for them as well. And now I think they've got both drivers, Sonoda and Ricardo, who will be able to tap into the pace of that car more often than not. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that direction from Ricardo opens up some development avenues as well for them, which is interesting. I think actually now the AlphaTauri is the best car all round in that battle of the four teams at the back, which is very big money battle. Obviously, Williams leads that on 28. AlphaTauri's got 16 points, but it only had five points two races ago. Alfa Romeo's on 16 and Haas is on 12. I think, well, certainly I know some of the rivals in that group feel the AlphaTauri is the best car in that uh, particular battle. So they're surging forward. We've got to talk about Yuki Tsunoda, though. Mark, obviously, he had that power unit change, so he wasn't in qualifying in, in any real terms. He was there. He helped uh, Ricardo with a toe. The Q1 toe was quite important because that meant Ricardo had two sets of softs for Q3. His underlying pace was good. He was having a good race and then a misjudgment. Yeah, and it's just, you know, the, the guy's cons- consistently quick now. But you just... Is he the full package? And, and that's the question that Red Bull will be asking. And just little mistakes like that. Yeah, he, was, he got very emotional in the height of battle. It was a pretty ruthless scrap he was having with Oscar Piastri. Um, but ultimately, that, that, that accident was his fault. And, you know, his sort of... Uh, his anger at... Afterwards, I don't know if that was at the situation, if he felt hard done by or whether it was at himself, I don't know. But, you know, it's, it's just, it's still not there. It's still not the complete package that we're seeing. I suspect he didn't articulate this, but I think it's probably annoyance at himself. I think he knows, and he knows that he needs to keep himself under control in races. And he'd be very disappointed because he had a pace advantage. And obviously, that would have put AlphaTauri in an even better position in terms of their points in that battle for seventh, closer to Williams. So, yeah, that was a real, real shame for Sonoda because actually, overall, he's had a pretty good season. But he's also had quite a bit of bad luck. And this was a day when, after the difficulties of, of the the rest of the weekend and the, the power unit change, he was really looking like he could get something out of it. So, yeah, a real shame. But Ricardo's the one who's uh, who's leading the way there at the moment. But we still haven't seen a really fair pace comparison between those two. So let's hope we have some fair weekends between those two over the next three Grand Prix. Let's move on to Williams now, Mark, because you could argue they had reason to be a bit disappointed only to get a ninth place courtesy of Alex Albon this weekend. Quite odd to talk about Williams being disappointed with that kind of result, but how much better could it have been and why wasn't it? When the track was a little bit cooler, um, it was absolutely flying, or Alex was. Um, and now when when you looked at the, um, I think it's FP1 and FP3, was second quickest of a stop and about tenth and a half off. And when you looked at where, when the, the overlays on the GPS, uh, it wasn't straight line. It was um, it was in the it was in the corners. It was in the high speed corners and a little bit of turn three, and it it was just absolutely flying. And there's something about 
the car, which they don't fully understand, that when the downforce, because everybody's on full downforce wings, but the actual downforce produced is low. And they seem to hang on to a bit more of their downforce than the others in situations like that for reasons they don't quite understand. Um, and it seemed that that was working really well because the car was balanced as well. And so the whole the whole trick was to have the front and rear tyre temperatures you know, equalised at the start of the qualifying lap, the start of the single lap. And when it was like that, it was flying. It was absolutely flying. Um, they, do, they didn't seem to realise that they were right up on the edge with the tyre temperatures because when the track temperature went up just a little bit, suddenly the car just all sort of collapsed. It was like a second a lap slower all of a sudden because it just no longer had that balance. And when you don't have that balance because of the tyre temperatures, it, 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 it compounds itself, just makes it worse throughout the lap. And, uh, yeah, that, that it took them a bit by surprise. So they didn't really understand why they were fast, so they were a little bit caught out when the conditions changed, and that's why they, they were no longer quite so fast. And, of course, even with that, it was coming to them in qualifying. Alex Alban did set a lap time good enough for Q3, but it was deleted for that turn to track limits. I did wonder if actually that was reflecting the fact the grip was building, because if you're expecting the car to slide, you'll pitch it in a bit more positively to turn two, and maybe just Albon ended up on a bit of track he wasn't quite aiming for, as it were, because of that. But actually, Williams suspected he hadn't exceeded track limits, and Albon said, well, I was sort of in the air when I was maybe proceeding it with the, the rear tyres. But um, yeah, that that's just one of those things. It's always a very marginal call, but recovering well to ninth place. So those two points are quite important in terms of just keeping the gap to AlphaTauri a little bit bigger than it might otherwise have been, especially if Sonoda had made the finish. Scott, a quick word for Alpine. Esteban Ocon scraped a point in 10th. Pierre Gasly was 11th, although it might well have been the other way around without the red flag. Much better pace in Austin. So where did that go? I think it's um, less about where that pace in Austin went and more about where that pace in Austin came from. Um, I got the impression, uh, obviously I wasn't uh, on the ground in, in Austin, but speaking to you and some other people that, that were there, Alpine were a little bit surprised at how competitive they were in Austin and couldn't really explain that. And this was a bit more kind of their level, really. Um, they're a marginal top 10 car at best. Um, it's just nothing like the team's form from last year where they were just consistently fourth or fifth fastest and just generally looking very good. Um, this just seems like a... I always thought that this trap might be quite bad for them. Obviously, they keep complaining about the power deficit they supposedly have with the engine. So that was... Um, this is uh, such a long, long straight here and the engines are having to work a lot harder. So I figured maybe they'd have uh, even... a. Uh, uh, an even tougher time relative to other races this season. Um, and it wasn't looking good, particularly good anyway, um, through practice and in qualifying, getting into Q2 was a win. And then just basically grinding it out in, in the race. It was it was not a particularly fun race, I think, for Ivor Alpine, but fair play to them. They hung in there. I was a little bit surprised and found it a bit cringy when Ocon's radio message came out over the broadcast and... He said whatever it was about tell has to be ready because I'm coming or something like that. And it's just like, oh, come on. Like, if you, first of all, if you're going to do a radio message like that, 
don't spend whatever it was 15 plus laps trying to do the overtake and failing if you're going to do it you've got to launch a mega move pretty soon afterwards if you're going to be that cocky but he got uh he got the move done in the end which i guess is uh is all that matters obviously ended up um ended up with uh, gasly being the one that that got the got the got the point so um <clears throat> can't really say that ocon had the last laugh in that in that battle yeah, and I think uh, ultimately they were slow in sector one, which I think points to the engine thing you said. And also that car isn't great on cooling. We saw they had that special engine cover with the, uh, the, the vents in the back of it. So they're having to take some extreme action, obviously. Anything you're using for cooling airflow-wise will compromise your performance a bit. So they're probably fairly happy with salvaging a point from that weekend on a weekend of damage limitation. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, as always, we've had an avalanche of questions for the traditional final section of the podcast. Many thanks to the Race Members Club for your support and excellent questions. If anything, there are too many great questions, so we can't get to all of them. However, a few of those have been put aside for discussion in our next episode as well. Mark, the first question for you from Villa Nikari, who says, did Alonso spin on purpose during quality to stop Lando Norris's lap? It looked really clumsy and not an Alonso-like mistake. I absolutely understand your suspicions and it did effectively ensure he got through to Q2 and some faster cars, including Norris, didn't. But looking at the incident closely, I'd give him the benefit of the doubt. He he lost the car before the apex. It wasn't like he got there and then stood hard on the gas, which would be the normal way to deliberately spin. The outcome gets far too random if you lose it pre-apex. The car was just absolutely horrible this weekend. Plus, those C5 tyres at this track were incredibly difficult to prepare and it's so easy to arrive at turn one with nowhere near the grip you're expecting so no i don't believe it was deliberate but um i can understand um given previous <laughs> previous history that um people may be uh suspicious I think there was a little bit of belligerent Alonso this weekend when those things tend to happen when he's not happy with the way things are, are going. He did actually admit he was having a pretty bad weekend and struggling and not 
particularly happy not doing that well. So yeah, it's all coming a little bit <laughs> unstuck there. Uh, Scott, a question for you from Don Anderson, who says, have the drivers shown a solution to the qualifying queue problem? Perhaps with five minutes to go in any quality session, the lights have to switch to a two seconds on, five seconds or maybe longer off sequence, like an on-ramp to the motorway. This will release cars in a more orderly fashion. Also, the pit exit should close two minutes before the end of the session. Have the drivers inadvertently hit upon a solution to a persistent problem? I still think an even better solution is making qualifying laps start and end at the end of timing sector two but metering the output of the pit lane might be the next best thing uh, i i like the thought that's gone into this and i think if you're going to have a um look not manual what's the word if you're going to have a, a specific solution like this to try to deal with the um the driving unnecessarily slowly finding a gap problem that we see so often in qualifying then sort of regulating when teams or when cars can get on track feels like the most logical way of doing it. And in in a in a sense, what sort of Verstappen started in, in Singapore and what we saw more so this weekend, it, in its own way, it's kind of elegant because it, 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 it as long as there then isn't ridiculously slow outlaps so that the car that's waited ages in the pits catches them up, catches up the slow outlap cars anyway by turn four and five, rendering the whole exercise futile, that it should work. It should work because ultimately everyone's running to roughly the same kind of... There's a bit of variance in outlaps and tyre prep between teams and cars, but generally speaking, they should all be fairly similar. So I think I think there's potentially no harm in in, in trying something that regulates when the the, the cars are allowed on track. I think what made it look a bit messier and was a bit would have been a bit more concerning this weekend is that you don't when you get those queues, the drivers or the cars that are in the queue don't really know what's going on. And that's where you risk having cars trying to drive round the ones that are stopped in the pit exit. And I think I might be slightly misquoting you, Ed, but I think what you've always said when it comes to zero tolerance on safety in the pits is that, you know, barriers, tire barriers um, Armco barriers, whatever it is, Tech Pro, that's all designed to be hit. People and things in the pit lane aren't designed to be hit. So if you have that kind of random element of drivers doing what they want when they're trying to get out, it doesn't actually take much. You don't have to be going at a particularly high speed for a bit of contact to send a car somewhere else. So I'd like there to be either nothing allowed in the pit lane or something a little bit more organised just to make sure that it's all a little bit more orderly, controlled and safe with the cars going out on track. Because ultimately, go leaving the pit lane is not meant to be part of the spectacle in qualifying, right? <laughs> well, it was something of a spectacle in Mexico, wasn't it? But I'm not sure it was a very, very good one. But there's certainly an intent to do something about it. But they have to be careful and not just moving the problem around, which that actually follows on from. So, yeah, an interesting one. I think we'll see maybe some changes next season in terms of that kind of thing. The next question comes from Lockie Cowan, who says, was the gap between Sonoda and Ricardo exaggerated due to Sonoda's penalty? Sonoda's race looked very impressive going from P18 to P8 at the restart. It seemed like Sonoda's pace in the race was there. I do wonder where he would have been without that grid penalty thoughts well yeah as we've mentioned I, I, it was exaggerated I still suspect Ricardo would have been quicker but I'm not sure it would have been by much and it would have been an interesting comparison of their two driving styles as Snowder's much more break late make up some time early in the corner and of course Snowder was a little bit limited in the weekend as well because he sat out FP1 for Isaac Hadjar incidentally who had a pretty impressive first run. Not stunningly quick, but never driven an F1 car before. I followed it closely. He was sort of an under-the-radar, quite 
promising star. I'm going to be keeping a close eye on him. Ollie Behrman, who Scott was following closely, was the, the probably the real star because he was outstanding in the Haas, but he's in a, slight, a very slightly different place in his development and uh, wasn't a complete F1 uh, newcomer. But anyway, I've digressed. So I think Sonoda would have been up there with Ricardo without the, uh, the, the engine change penalty. And probably just behind but not necessarily it could have been uh, it could have been the other way around so I don't think we've had the Sonoda versus Ricardo pace conundrum solved yet and I hope we will in the final three races Mark a question for you now from Backslider with the soft tyre again seeing minimal usage in the race as in Austin is this an error from Pirelli in the compound selected or deliberate strategy should we consider the soft to be essentially a qualifying tyre now and irrelevant to the race well it varies from track to track there isn't a single policy but yes in 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 this case that that tire was known to be uh way too soft to be a, a feasible race tire and that it would be used as a as a qualifying special essentially um so that you know that that that, that dovetailed that it's a sort of railroads everyone to to adopt very similar strategies um you know it, it it's tricky to get right because, especially Mexico, because you can have such wild variation in tire performance um, according to the conditions, which you, you you can't you know accurately predict. But um, yeah, as a generalisation, um, there are certain tracks that you come to where it's pretty much known in advance that the softest tire is going to be a qualifying tire only, and this was one of them. Question for you now, Scott from Thomas Knight. Now has a bottom in the Constructors' Championship. I asked about the possibility of this in the Canada podcast. How disappointing was this race, and indeed season? Another expensive rebuild for the K-Mag car, and no finish higher than 10th in a Grand Prix since Melbourne. Yeah, it's really um, it's really disappointing. It's starting to feel like the, the upgrade, you know, the biggest ever in-season upgrade for a Haas that we saw in Austin's, feels like it's not made a dramatic difference to be honest, it's still a car that's faster on Saturdays than it is on Sundays. And I think if you go back, if you take Canada as the sort of reference point for that th- first third of the season and where it looked after that, I think even by the summer break, I remember when you and I were discussing how you'd rate the different teams, Ed, kind of Hass was about where it should be really, right? Like 7th, 8th in the Constructors' Championship, fighting for the odd point. It's kind of about where a team of that standing and size and etc. should be, but it's worse than that. And it's now at a point where if the upgrade hasn't really been that effective and judging by the driver's feedback, I, I don't think you could say it's been transformative. What does that mean for the direction that Haas wants to go for next year? What their understanding is? Uh, how effective their tools and processes and simulations are at actually realizing significant performance gains because it just feels like since the start of 22 when Haas had obviously put everything into the start of these new technical rules it's just been a gradual step backwards time and time again because others with more resources and more know-how and more personnel and everything have just overtaken them and I don't really see how Haas turns it around. I feel like we needed to see something really significant from the Austin upgrade, just anything to show that they were back on the right path. And I don't think a Hulkenberg rearguard action has 
brave and ultimately futile as it was, I forget how far down he fell. Was it sort of fourteenth place or something like that? He ended up. You know, that's it. Doesn't matter how long you hold on gamely in in tenth for. It was. I think it was only the nature of the circuit that kept him in that position for as long as as, as he was. So, I think it's deeply concerning for Haas at the moment. Yeah, he was 13th in the end. And in fact, he said he took the last couple of laps for himself, just sliding and just to show show the team what tyre slip's really about. So he had a little bit of fun, but he knew the race was gone by that point. He did actually say that he thought with the, the track characteristics in Mexico, maybe the old spec car would have been stronger here. But the hope is this is kind of one step backwards to go two forward. So you can look at it two ways. It could be this is a preview of the 24 car and they're ahead in a change of concept, but that's not really helping them this year. And yeah, Finishing last in the constructor seems very, very possible. Now, a question I'll take from Christopher Parry, who says, is Aston Martin now focusing on 2024? Their pace seems to have fallen off a cliff, and connected to that is a question from Simon Townend, who asks, what has happened to Aston Martin? Have they really bought bad upgrade after bad upgrade, or just lost the upgrade race with all the teams around them? Yeah, Aston are interesting. They're not focusing on 2024 in the sense you think it is, because this car is the basis of next year's car the understanding and the development direction that's been applied to this car is what's driving the development of next year's car so there's something they're missing there's something's not going right because yes some teams had more to gain and could leap ahead teams like mclaren that kind of thing but if you compare them to say alpine or someone like that it's not good for aston martin their messaging slightly strange on it. It's funny. Mike Crack was being asked after the race, have you lost your way? He was asked that a couple of times and he said, oh, you keep saying this, but no, we're not lost because then we'd be trying random things and just seeing what happened if we were lost. We know where we're going, but I'm, I'm not that convinced. There's something there they're not, they're not quite grasping. It might not be a huge thing, but they need to understand it. And so I would say at the moment, they're trying to understand the car. They're trying to understand the latest upgrade. Obviously, they reverted stroll to largely the, the old package as well so they could do a bit of a comparison it was difficult because Alonso picked up a little bit of damage from the the Perez Leclerc Detroitus at the start and then retired and then stroll retired after the collision with Bottas late on so I'm not sure how much they learned overall but yeah it's not all adding up and there's been a few little operational things which are unusual for that team going wrong so they feel like things are getting a little bit difficult but I don't think we can just say they've sort of written off this year and they're focusing on next year because this year is next year and they need to make some steps in the last few races and understanding to show that they're on the right track so nervous times there I think for that team after it's astonishing first half of the season Mark a question now for you from Kevin King a nice straightforward one where could Lando have finished without the red flag um, maybe a place or two higher because obviously he was very disadvantaged by the timing of his pit stop just before the red flag. Um, but in another sense, the red flag helped him. It, it didn't help him positionally, of course, but it, it brought the front of the pack within much closer reach. You know, the, before he pitted, he was 37 seconds off the lead. Um, of course, the, you know, the, the, that all gets cancelled out and um, he was much closer to the front. So the, there was less field spread for him to get through. It was easier to make those... The, the pick off those cars when there was so much more um, densely packed. Um, I think the more interesting question is where would he have finished had he qualified where he should have? Um, you know, somewhere in the upper regions of Q3, as we talked about before. And we, as we said, he virtually identical race pace to Hamilton. So I guess that's where he would have been fighting. He would have been fighting for, for, with Hamilton probably for runner-up. 
Now a question for you, Scott, from Ansi Rolamo, who says, I can't remember a single truly thrilling race in modern Mexico City. What is it about the track that causes this? Okay, so you two can help me out if I've missed if I miss anything here, but I would say um first of all the um the demands of the race uh, in terms of the emphasis it puts on management that's not just tires but also you know engine and, and brakes i just don't think you can run particularly closely at this at this track it, it just doesn't lend itself well to 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 follow in i don't think the layout is particularly good for racing apart from turns one through to four um that it's 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 awkward. It's, you know, those medium-ish speed S's and high-speed S's then that runs down into the stadium section, which you can't really do anything through. And that final two or three corners is really quite fiddly. So by the time you get out onto the main straight, you're not particularly close to the to the car in front, obviously because of the um the 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 air density, you don't have as much of a of a of a of a toe, a slipstream effect down the the start finish straight. So it doesn't. It's also very dusty um, offline, which I guess when you do make an overtake can make it a little bit difficult. But I think that's a bit of a lesser factor. So it just feels like, just feels like there's a combination of things that mean it's just not a, it's not a good track for racing. I think I quite like those this, this race exists because it feels like one of the last. I can't really think of any other races that are as that put as big an emphasis on testing the cars. You know, their longevity, reliability, robustness, whatever. Feels like this is one of those races. I don't feel like this is a good race. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. It's just it's just like walking a three-dimensional tightrope because you've got to keep the cooling of the car working, but you've got to keep the tyres alive at the same time. You've got to watch the brakes. So you're trying to do all this and get this sort of what I call steady state running in race conditions, which is ferociously difficult. And then the reason I don't think you get good racing is because everybody's trying to do that. So you've got to concentrate on that. And that means overtaking becomes very, very difficult because you just don't necessarily have that pace and you might end up knocking yourself out of the window because of that. So yeah, it's it's nice as a one-off, but uh, yeah, it, it does mean this race tends to be a bit contained. Let's put it that way. But um, Unless you land on Norris. Well, that's the amazing thing, that's isn't it? That's why that yeah. drive was so astonishing. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. It's, um, yeah, quite something he was doing there. And he will have been, it won't just have been pressing on and the car did the work. There'll have been some very, very clever gymnastics going on with the yeah. way he was doing things. And you could barely see it, which is pretty remarkable. But Norris is a, is a hugely accomplished driver. So perhaps shouldn't be surprised by that, but because of the place we were. A question now from Oscar Robledo. For me, can Lewis Hamilton catch Sergio Perez for runner-up spots in the remaining races? No, he can't. But Sergio Perez can back into falling behind Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton pretty much said that in the press conference. He said, well, he's got the better car, so it's dependent on him, really. Because Perez does have the better car, and he has a 20-point advantage. So, really, it's, it's down to Perez. He should finish second, but Hamilton's having a nice run at the end of the season. He's happier with the rear stability of the car and the feel, so he's going to pick up some decent results. But, yeah, it, it's all on Perez, ultimately, I'd still think Perez probably will finish second, and I think he should. But yeah, Hamilton will be there waiting to pick up any uh, any trips that Perez had, and that that first turn one today has certainly reignited that battle. And the final question for you, Mark, from Nevin Knowles, who says, should Ferrari have put the medium on Charles Leclerc at the restart? They had a new medium, and on a similar strategy to Max, would not have had the pace. We saw with Lewis that mediums could go the distance. Was Ferrari too conservative? In hindsight, yes. But mediums were a risk in real time. Mercedes and McLaren put them on 
but they were very nervous about whether they could do 36 laps on them. They, they weren't convinced, but they did it to be aggressive because they had little to lose and not, not much threat from behind. So, you know, if, if they just did the same, they, they, they were definitely not going to make progress with the mediums they might. Um, but it was risky. Whereas Ferrari, where Ferrari was sitting, they had plenty to lose. And the, the calculation, the, you know, the, the, the data from the practices... Um, pretty much of every team was that after 15 laps the hard would be the faster tyre and there were 36 laps to go and if you'd you just gone off the numbers that pretty much every team was working off the hard was a logical decision and the, the medium was the gamble but as it happened those numbers didn't turn out to be right because the, the way the track temperature came down and the medium ended up being a faster tyre so those that put it on as a gamble looked like they were really smart and those who didn't look like they were silly but that's not how it works in real time that's the, that's the important distinction between real time and hindsight well thanks very much to everyone for those questions and thanks very much to mark and scott for their excellent answers head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen plenty to read there on the mexican grand prix mark uses race analysis my driver rankings and scott's been writing about daniel ricardo all sorts of things to delve into there check out our other podcasts including bring back v10s that tells classic f1 stories the race f1 tech show with the legend that is gary anderson our indycar formula and moto gp podcasts and also have a look at our youtube channel both for short and longer videos videos well that's two down one to go in this triple header so stay with us for everything you need to know from the brazilian grand prix the athletic